Hello, and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. This coming Sunday is the last of November, which is when the Church celebrates the Novus Ordo Feast of Christ the King, uh, better known as the Solemnity of Our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the Universe, or perhaps I should say more properly known as. And, and because this feast is celebrated on the last Sunday of the liturgical year, the Novus Ordo liturgical year, it falls on a different date uh, from one year to the next. And so since uh, this year, the last Sunday of November falls on the 21st, that means that the, uh, uh, the solemnity, of, solemnity of Christ the King supersedes um, any feast or uh, liturgy that would be celebrated on that day, which, uh, as it turns out, is the presentation of Mary, the presentation of Mary in the temple. So today, later on in the program, we're going to look at the, uh, the liturgical devotion, the history, the tradition behind the presentation of Mary in the temple. And we're also going to talk about a common prayer, uh, one that you almost certainly say every single day, perhaps many times a day, that is related to the second coming of our Lord as King of the universe, and to answer also the question, what is the kingdom of God, and where do you find it today? Now, in Scripture, and most importantly, in your life. But first, speaking of the kingdom of God, uh, the gospel from this Sunday's traditional Latin Mass was the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the yeast. And as has become uh, the custom here, I'm going to uh, read the gospel from the New Catholic Bible translation. I could read it in the Latin, but I don't know how much that would do, how much good that would do, most of us, me included. Uh, so let's take it from Matthew 13, 31 through 35. Jesus proposed still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is the greatest of plants and becomes a tree large enough for birds to come and make nests in its branches. And he offered them yet another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed with three measures of flour until it was completely leavened. Jesus told the crowds all these things in parables. Indeed, he never spoke to them except in parables. This was to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will proclaim what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. So these are some more of the parables of the kingdom, um, like the parable of the weeds and the wheat that we read from uh, last week. And uh, why is it that Jesus spoke in parables? Well, Matthew stresses that he speaks in parables to reveal God and to reveal his kingdom. And in that way, he shows how the Messiah fulfills, as he said, what had been spoken through the prophet. In this case, he's quoting from Psalm 78, verse 2, which says, I will open my mouth in parables and expound the mysteries of the past. Now, these are parables, and parables are stories that use um, <clears throat> exaggeration and, uh, and kind of paradoxical circumstances sometimes. A parable of the mustard seed begins by saying, um, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. Well, mustard seeds, I mean, mustard, of course, is used as a, as a condiment. But it's not like a cash crop. In fact, it's, it's kind of a nuisance plant because of its rapid growth. 
and so farmers, the idea of a farmer planting a mustard seed in his field is kind of, you know, would get people's attention uh, the way all the parables do. But, of course, it's about the growth of the church. The mustard seed, the smallest seed uh, used by Palestinian farmers and, and gardeners, I should say, in that day. But the plants they become can reach a height of 10 or 12 feet, even, I understand, as, as high as 20 feet. And Jesus says that the mustard plant grows and becomes a tree large enough for the birds to come and make nests in its branches. And, you know, it's a shrub, but, you know, if it gets big enough, of course, it resembles a tree. And more importantly, the use of that word is an allusion to prophecies, uh, particularly the prophecy of Daniel and also in Ezekiel, where the image of a tree is used to symbolize a great empire. And then the birds that nest in the tree are the various nations that become part of that, part of that empire, indicating that the kingdom of heaven is going to become a worldwide uh, entity and people from all nations would find refuge there. Of course, he's alluding the kingdom of God, he's, he's comparing it to the church. Therefore, notwithstanding, you know, what was at the time the very humble ministry of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is, is already dawning, he says, and in the end, it's going to be seen in all of its majesty, all of its magnificence, and uh, it's going to be a, a mighty kingdom. From, from this handful of followers, it will grow and grow until it embraces all nations in its fold. And this parable, um, therefore, our, our Lord's foretold that his church would be Catholic, which is to say universal and worldwide. Um, the next uh, parable is the parable of the yeast or the parable of the leaven. And that's a, an invitation to faith in the efficacy of the ministry of our Lord. So from the kingship or the kingdom to the kingship. You know, and again, despite <clears throat> it's it's kind of seemingly modest and unspectacular character, you put least and put yeast in the flour and it leavens the whole loaf. Um, it constitutes a stage in uh, the eschatological coming of the kingdom of God, this leavening process. See, the greatness of kingdom is shown by the amount of flour, you know, enough to, three measures, that's enough to feed over a hundred people, that is leavened by this small amount of yeast. So that's, you know, the effects of Christianity. He's showing us through this parable that um, the way in which his doctrine of grace, uh, doctrine and grace would affect the hearts of men. The woman represents the church, the yeast, the Christian grace and truth, and then the meal uh, denotes all of mankind, both individually and the whole human race collectively. So <clears throat> even as the yeast lays hold of, of you know, one particle of flour after another and penetrates throughout the entire, you know, everywhere, through the whole loaf until it's in, uh, entirely leavened and becomes good and palatable, so Christianity... Uh, will penetrate and purify and sanctify the hearts of men until the whole of human society is raised and sanctified by the doctrine and grace of Jesus Christ. And that was most perfectly realized uh, in Christendom in you know, the, the, the late Middle Ages, although it, it did not, like Camelot, it was one brief shining moment, didn't last all that long. Um, but the church, of course, now has spread far beyond that into parts of the world that uh, Christians didn't even know existed at that time. And you'll notice that all of the parables in Matthew 13, which is called the Day of Parables by biblical scholars, um, each one of these parables begins with a simile. The kingdom of God is like. It's like this, like that, the other. Jesus is describing the kingdom 
through analogy. And in what he's speaking of is the hidden mysteries of God's kingdom that are present in the church. He knows the chosen people are expecting the Messiah to be an earthly king. And <clears throat> so he speaks in parables to the great crowds, but he explains them only to his apostles and his disciples. And while the illustrations in the parables are clear enough, you know, taken from everyday life, seeds and baking and farming and so forth, uh, fishing, but the underlying truths remain obscure, especially to those without faith. So in other words, he spoke in parables because the great mass of the people at that time, even the leaders and the teachers, were incapable of understanding or receiving the unveiled truth about the kingdom of God. You know, a person who has no sense of the supernatural sees a mere narrative in the parable without perceiving the hidden and higher teaching which it contains. But that doesn't mean, of course, that Christianity is esoteric because our Lord uh, immediately explains it to his followers. And then, of course, the evangelists have written that down for us as well. In verses 10 and 11, it says that, Then his disciples approached and asked him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And his reply is, To you has been granted knowledge of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. So that inner circle that, that accept Jesus with faith are privileged to know God's mysteries or the, the secrets of faith, quote-unquote. And our Lord instructs them privately, which shows that he intends to arrange the church hierarchically. You know, throughout the Gospels, we see how he invests his authority in the apostles and their successors to administer the sacraments and to, uh, to transmit God's truth through their teaching and so on. And now, uh, after the break, we're going to talk more about the parables of the kingdom. We're going to uh, reveal what it means for us today. We're going to talk about what is the kingdom of God. But right now, I want to bring up something. This is not a, uh, a completely formed idea, um, and, and I wanted to bring it up. And, uh, you know, um, and I would hope if you guys have questions or, uh, you know, comments, don't be afraid to shoot me an email or to go on the app and, and post in the forum because I do my best to answer that stuff uh, as, as quickly as I can. But um, it, it just, I, I asked myself, why was Rush Limbaugh, uh, God rest his soul, a phenomenon? Uh, you know, because he became the most uh, popular talk show host in the world, or certainly in the country. And the answer lies in the fact that he was able to articulate the, uh, the thoughts and the feelings of a large uh, part of the population, right? He had this big demographic. And unlike, uh, you know, contrary to what his critics uh, would say, that he was telling people how to think, what he was really doing primarily was putting, you know, uh, articulating what that big demographic could not put into words themselves or, or didn't have a platform. And so those people, you know, they weren't being told what to think. They, they got to feel like what they were thinking and feeling was finally getting a national uh, a platform, that it was finally being recognized. And that's a powerful thing. We're going to talk about... Um, that idea flesh out a little bit more on the other side of this break and talk about the presentation of Mary in the temple when we return here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio with lots more no-nonsense Catholic. So stay with us, and we'll be right back.
Welcome back. No-Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. Uh, before the break, I was talking about uh, the late Rush Limbaugh and how he became, became a cultural phenomenon largely by articulating the thoughts and feelings of, of a large demographic of uh, Americans. You know, back in the 1920s, there was a fellow named Elbert Hubbard, and he said that if a man was to go in front of a, a group of people and tell them things that they already believe to be true, that they would say, this man is a genius, he thinks just like I do. Now, there is another kind of cultural phenomenon that has transpired more recently, and that's uh, Jordan Peterson. And, uh, you know, it, it, doesn't, it seems like he couldn't possibly have less in common with Rush Limbaugh. Uh, Dr. Peterson, if you don't know, he's a Canadian academic. I mean, he was a professor of Jungian psychology at a Canadian university. And, you know, university psychology departments are hardly known as bastions of conservatism. And unlike Mr. Limbaugh, Dr. Peterson had no aspirations to be a media celebrity. See, what happened is that the Canadian government was proposing laws governing speech. What you can or cannot say was going to be a matter of of law. And Dr. Peterson took the position, and you know, especially as an academic who's teaching people who needs to confront, you know, what people think, and to to help to make them think. Uh, teach them how to think. You know, he says that's not the government's job to tell people how to think or how to speak. And, you know, so-called political correctness, of course, had already um, caused so much grief on college campuses and continues to to this day. And so, long story longer, Dr. Peterson went on some Canadian television news program uh, to be interviewed uh, and, and defend his position. And it's very clear that the host, it was a woman, uh, that she expected to clean his clock, you know, and mop the floor with him. But exactly the opposite happened. He stayed very cool, and she was the one who wound up finding her own position indefensible. And that performance on that program did uh, what Rush had done so effectively, which is it, it gave voice to the thoughts and feelings of many, I mean, perhaps millions of North Americans who are sick and tired of all the, you know, politically correct nonsense. And... That might have been his 15 minutes of fame, you know, his one brief shining moment in the sun. And because, I mean, he didn't have any desire to be a celebrity. But the fact is he was a professor who had posted hundreds of hours of lectures and, uh, you know, uh, classroom instruction on YouTube. So when people went searching for Jordan Peterson to look for this interview, they found that, but they also found this huge body of work. Now, what's interesting to me is in that first uh, interview and in, you know, the many, many that followed and in his lectures, Jordan Peterson relies almost entirely on common sense, just plain common sense. And it proves the old axiom that common sense in an uncommon degree is what the world calls wisdom. And really, that's what I'm on about here. That's what we need in the Catholic Church. I'm not Catholic because Catholicism is reasonable, but the fact of the matter is, it is reasonable. It is, in fact, the the most reasonable, the most uh, cohesive, the most comprehensive worldview ever imagined, or that could ever be imagined, in my opinion. And that's what we need in the Church today. And that is no nonsense. Okay, uh, I said that we were going to talk about 
the 21st of November in the Novus Order this year. Uh, that's the, the final uh, Sunday of November. So they'll be celebrating the Feast of Christ the King. But normally, the 21st of November is the presentation of Mary in the temple. Now, for as long as I've been Catholic, I have heard about uh, the tradition that Mary's parents, uh, Saints Joachim and Anne, you know, they, they had gone for many years without having any children, and they prayed continually, and they even promised God that if he would grant them a child, they would offer him or her to his service in the temple uh, at Jerusalem. And the tradition is that uh, after the birth of Mary, Saints Anne and Joachim took her to the temple in Jerusalem at the tender age of three years old to present her to God, uh, and that she then remained there uh, as a, a handmaid of the Lord, if you will. So I accepted this because it's part of our tradition, and I knew that it had been recounted by uh, various mystics and, and visionaries like Venerable Mary of Agreda or, or uh, Anne Catherine Emmerich. But because of that, I kind of assumed that the tradition was based on private revelation, that it was something that had been revealed uh, just you know, to the saints and mystics. And then I picked up a book by one of my favorites, Father Lawrence Lavozic, called Mary, My Hope. And this is just a couple of weeks ago. Now, Father Lavozic is best known today for his children's books. But, you know, he was a very popular writer in his day, he wrote many other books. And Mary, My Hope was actually written in honor of uh, the Marian year 1954, which was the centenary of the proclamation of the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. And so in this book, uh, which was then revised after Vatican II and, and the, the, uh, to reflect the new calendar, um, and it was revised by Father Lavazic himself, who was still with us at that time, and, uh, and he expounds on all the Marian liturgical feasts. And uh, um, I was, you know, like I said, only recently got a copy, and I was looking for a Marian feast in November to talk about uh, with you on the program here, and that's when I discovered that the first written account of the presentation of Mary, not a matter of private revelation. In fact, it was recorded for the first time by St. Evodius. And I forgive you if you've never heard of him, because I never had. <laughs> but he was Bishop of Antioch after St. Peter and before St. Ignatius. And it is um, um, likely that he was one of the 70 disciples that Jesus sent out to preach the gospel which means that it's also very likely that he was in the upper room at Pentecost. Okay, that's a pretty good, if you're looking for a pedigree of the early church, you can't do much better than that. And, and I learned that the presentation of Mary was related by and held true by this you know, very impressive uh, figure of the early church and also by St. Jerome and St. Gregory of Nyssa and St. Gregory uh, Nazianzen and other patristic authorities that lived you know, when all the church's traditions were, were still new and recent. And so the feast of the presentation actually became part of the liturgical celebration of the church as far back as the 6th century. So even before the reforms um, of Gregory the Great. And the date of November 21st uh, was fixed by Pope Sixtus V uh, back in 1585 and has been celebrated on that date ever since. So the presentation of Mary is... You know, uh, when we say it's part of tradition, that's big T tradition. Uh, and so according, you know, apostolic tradition, the writings of the fathers, the opinion of the church, Mary spent her early years in the temple at Jerusalem, literally uh, as a handmaid of the Lord, 
serving God in the temple uh, from the age of three until her espousal to St. Joseph. It is an indisputable fact or part of tradition that Mary felt that she couldn't give herself entirely to God except through the practice of perpetual virginity and that she was enlightened by divine grace that it was the will of God that she make such a vow, this vow of chastity. And that's why St. Luke tells us that when the angel Gabriel says to her, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with thee, Mary was greatly troubled by his words and wondered in her heart what the salutation could mean. You know, Mary wondered, pardon me, Mary wondered and was troubled when St. Gabriel told her that she was going to be the mother of the Messiah. How will this be, she asked, since I am a virgin? Literally, how will this be because I know not man? That's, that's the uh, St. Jerome and the, the Vulgate. You note that she didn't doubt like Zachary. She didn't doubt the angel. She didn't ask, how can this be? But how will this be? Because she'd vowed her virginity to God and knew that he would never ask her to break that vow. Hence the angel's explanation, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The Feast of the Presentation reminds us very powerfully that under Our Lady's patronage, you and I should consecrate our whole life to God and serve Him in our state of life, you know, whatever that is. And the same, we should have the same uh, earnest devotion and sincerity and serve Him, you know, in the way that Mary did. So according to Vatican II, this is from the Lumen Gentium, the uh, dogmatic constitution on the Church, it says that the Church in her apostolic work, sorry, my throat's a little dry, uh, the, the Church looks to Mary. Paragraph 64 says, The Church indeed, contemplating Mary's hidden sanctity, imitating her charity, and faithfully fulfilling the Father's will by receiving the Word of God in faith, becomes herself a mother. By her preaching, she brings forth a new and immortal life, uh, brings forth to a new and immortal life the sons who are born to her in baptism, conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of God. She herself is a virgin who keeps the faith given to her by her spouse, whole and entire. Imitating the mother of her Lord and by the power of the Holy Spirit, she, that is the Church, keeps with virginal purity an entire faith, a firm hope, and a sincere charity. What else does Mary have to say to us today? How does her example of virtue touch lay men and will women in the pilgrim church? Right, it's, it's the church militant that's fighting the good fight. And I think one of the most important lessons that Mary has for us is that in her example of humility and discipleship and union with Christ and openness to the Holy Spirit, Mary stands in complete contrast to the sin and the evil of the modern world. And therefore, we should do the same. With every Hail Mary, we say, Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. We are confessing that we have added to the evil in the world by our own sins. And yet this prayer should be full of confidence because we can find strength for today, right now, not only through Mary's constant intercession, 
but also in in uh, uh, the memory of the way that Our Lady uh, in the Gospels lived the life of faith. And I think that's the point of the presentation of Mary and all the other feasts of Our Lady, that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is the great exemplar of the whole church, that she's the model for, for the church herself and for each and every one of us in the church and at every stage of human life and in every possible situation and through every Christian vocation. No one ever followed Jesus so well as his blessed mother, and no one can help us more through example and through intercession. Uh, Also, in the Feast of the Presentation of Mary, we see the great love and fidelity of Saints Anne and Joachim. And what a great example for parents today um, for us to imitate. You know, I, I sometimes think we forget that our children also belong to God that they are his gift entrusted to us. And so Catholic parents can learn from Anne and jo- Joachim to care for that caring for our children is a, a gift entrusted to us by God. Okay, more on this uh, on the other side of the break. Also, when we come back, what is the kingdom of God? That and more when we return on No Nonsense Catholic. Welcome back, No-Nonsense, <clears throat> pardon me, No-Nonsense Catholic. We were talking about the presentation of Mary, and right before the break, I mentioned the example of saints, pardon me, got a dry spot in my throat, mm, the, uh, the example of saints Anne and Joachim uh, for Catholic parents today, that, that our children are a gift entrusted to us by God, and that we are meant to guard them from sin and to to instruct them in the way of virtue. And I'm just, uh, you know, afraid that many Catholic parents today don't give much thought to encouraging their kids to even consider and prayerfully consider a religious vocation. You know, obviously your vocation in life is is a call from God. And uh, if a person thinks they have a religious vocation, the church is going to help them discern if they really are called to that or not. You know, it's just unfortunate, as I say, that some parents are reluctant to even encourage them to consider it because they fail to appreciate that it is our greatest privilege as Catholic parents. The greatest privilege bestowed on us by God is to dedicate our sons and daughters to his holy service, regardless of their vocation. You know, uh, we also, the last thing on the presentation, I think we often talk about how the redemption of the world rested on Mary's fiat, on her yes to the angel Gabriel. But I wonder if if we really appreciate the years of formation that prepared her for that choice. You know, Mary had already in her childhood dedicated herself to the love and service of God, having been led, you know, through divine inspiration and through uh, the example of her parents to, uh, to his house, the temple. She prepared herself for this... Uh, sublime dignity of divine motherhood in silence and in solitude with God, became a handmaid of the Lord. She followed with with great devotion the life led in common with the other girls there under the care of the holy women in the temple. And when you contemplate this time in, in her life, it sheds some serious light on the words of Mary, behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. And, and it, it illuminates that relationship between Mary and the prophet Simeon. 
and and uh, which we see uh, when she and Holy Joseph presented Jesus in the temple. You know, consider the way that, that that very familiar way, almost intimate way that Simeon speaks to Mary when he prophesies, "Behold, this child is destined for the rise and fall of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be contradicted, and you yourself a sword will pierce." so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And likewise, the prophetess Anna. Anna was 84 years old, and she had been widowed a mere seven years after her uh, marriage. So from that uh, time forward, all the years since, St. Luke tells us, she never left the temple, but worshipped day and night with fasting and prayer. So Anna would have been there during the time Mary served in the temple and very likely knew her well. You know, Father Lavazic said in his book that we um, can't even imagine the heavenly beauty that adorned Mary's innocent soul as she was prepared by the Eternal Father to be the mother of his divine Son and the bride of the Holy Spirit. But, you know, but Anna was there to observe day to day how this holy young girl, um, how in her the, the infinite wisdom and power of God was constructing a living temple for the Savior of the world. And so it's no surprise that we read in in Luke 2.38 that, like Simeon, Anna also recognized Mary uh, as the mother of the Holy Child who was to be the Messiah. And coming forward at that very time, it says, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were awaiting the redemption of Israel. And so in the, the liturgy of the presentation of Mary, the Church prays, Eternal Father, as we honor the holiness and glory of the Virgin Mary, may her prayers bring us the fullness of your life and love. We ask this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who <clears throat> lives and reigns with you, one God, forever and ever. Amen. So, in the traditional calendar, we uh, celebrated the Feast of Christ the King back on the 31st. In the Novus Order calendar, we're going to be celebrating it on this Sunday, which, of course, will supersede the presentation of Mary, which we've been talking about. So standing between these two feasts of Christ the King, if you will, um, the ordinary and the extraordinary, I think it's a perfect opportunity to ask the question of what is Christ the King? What is the kingdom of God? You know, we've been reading about these parables. We've been talking about the kingdom of God. What is it? You know, I like typical first century Jews, the the apostles themselves had the wrong idea about the messianic kingdom that was promised and prophesied back in the Old Testament. You know, they were looking for Jesus to establish an an earthly kingdom that would free Palestine from Roman occupation and and, and from oppression, you know, uh, political oppression. So in the Gospel of Mark, we see James and John approach our Lord and ask for places of honor in the new regime, so to speak. Uh, Mark 10, 37, they said to him, Allow us to sit, one at your right hand and the other at your left, in your glory. But as Christ himself would say to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. You know, the apostles and disciples wouldn't understand that until after the resurrection. And we, every day, we pray in the Our Father, presumably many times a day, especially if you pray the Holy Rosary. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God will only come in its fullness at the end of all things, But the kingdom of God is also a reality here and now. You know, when those first Christians prayed, Thy kingdom come, they were praying for his spiritual reign, not for Jerusalem's independence from Rome. The kingdom of God was announced, first announced in the covenant with Abraham. Jesus says in Matthew 8, uh, verse 11, 
Many, I tell you, will come from the east and the west to sit with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob at the banquet in the kingdom of heaven. But this, this spiritual kingdom is present now in us and in the church. In Luke's gospel, we read, Once the Pharisees asked him when the kingdom of God was coming, and he answered, The coming of the kingdom of God will not occur with signs that can be observed, nor will people say, Here it is or there it is, for the kingdom of God is in your midst. Also translated, uh, the kingdom of God is among you. Or, um, you know, we have the, uh, the uh, um, words of the Douay, right, the, the, from St. Jerome, the kingdom of God is within you. Right? This, this, this spiritual kingdom is already at work in the personal actions of, of Jesus and in the grace moving in us. And as Our Lady of America reminds us, this is a kingdom that cannot be taken away precisely because Christ reigns within each of us. That's that same kingdom that will be complete when all evil is destroyed and God establishes the new heavens and the new earth, as he promised in, in uh, Revelation 21. So the values of the kingdom of God run counter to our human expectation. All the parables in Matthew 13 begin with a simile. The kingdom of heaven is like. See, we can only understand the kingdom by analogy because, as St. Paul said in his vision of heaven, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the human heart what God has prepared for those who love him. It's 1 Corinthians 2.9. But in Matthew 13, and in verse 11, Jesus explains to the apostles <clears throat> to you has been granted knowledge of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, that is the, the crowd, it has not been granted. So each of the parables then describe what the kingdom is really like as opposed to what his hearers expect it to be. And the kingdom of heaven is not a geographical location, but a spiritual reign wherein God rules and, and we share in that eternal life, and we join that kingdom through baptism as members of the church. Um, I would say that, uh, you know, when you enter the church through baptism, you enter the kingdom. But, but you're still in the world. You're just no longer of the world. See, what changes isn't your position, it's your condition. You leave the state of grace, or this, rather, you leave the state of sin and enter the state of grace. All right? <clears throat> Last week, we did the parable of the weeds and the wheat, which, which, uh, tells how even in the church, the sinners and the just, the good and the bad, grow up together. And God suffers the wicked to remain until the end. Uh, well, for one thing, to allow for their conversion, you know, until that final judgment when the, the angels will separate the sinners from the just and the wheat will be gathered into the barns and, and the weeds will be bundled up and thrown into the fiery furnace. So the kingdom will ultimately be revealed in its fullness. But until then, we should be very cautious about our judgments because only God sees what's in the heart. Only Christ is qualified to make that final judgment. It's more important for you and me uh, to judge our own actions and how, you know, to judge how well we are responding to God's grace in our lives. Um, the other parables in Matthew 13, like the pearl of great price and the treasure in the field, tell us that being a subject of the kingdom of God is our greatest possession. Uh, that this that, that treasure signifies the grace of, of Christianity, which far surpasses all the riches of the world. 
So the man who finds this treasure rejoices. He guards the treasure jealously. He's willing to give up everything rather than lose the faith and the grace of God. Parable of the the pearl also signifies the great happiness of possessing the true faith and being in a state of grace. Now, the man who found the treasure stumbled on it by accident, but recognized its great value when he saw it. Whereas the merchant, on the other hand, was searching for the pearl of great price, and when he found it, sold everything to purchase it. So, so the person who diligently strives after truth and salvation will find them, as will the person who stumbles on it so long as he has the grace to recognize it. St. Irenaeus said, There exists only one pearl without price, for there exists only one truth. And even as the wise merchant who bought this pearl at the cost of all he possessed alone knew how rich he had become by possession of it, so only those who belong to the church and possess grace know how rich they are. Those who have not the faith or are ignorant of its value have no conception of how rich those are who possess it. You know, the original 1970 edition of the New American Bible translated kingdom of God as reign of God uh, to show that his kingdom and his kingship are inseparable. Pius XI established the the Feast of Christ the King to fulfill that papal motto, Pax Christi in Regnum Christi, the peace of Christ in the reign of Christ, so that we understand that peace will only come in the world when our hearts and minds are turned to God. And that's no nonsense. Okay, back with a a, a sign of the second coming when we come back after this. Stay with us on No Nonsense Catholic, Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Okay, welcome back, round four, No Nonsense Catholic. Great to have you with us here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I want to say a final word about the church and the kingdom of God and the kingship of Christ in our lives. Jesus is a king. Uh, The genealogies in the gospel show that Jesus was descended from King David. The angel Gabriel told Mary that she would give her divine son the throne of his ancestor David. The kingship of Christ, therefore, is a Davidic kingship. And yet, like the parable of the mustard seed, the royal empire of the church far outshines anything that was accomplished by David or the son of David, King Solomon. The focal point of this new kingdom is not a throne in a palace in the earthly Jerusalem, but a throne that stands next to the Father in the heavenly Jerusalem. The unity of Christ's kingdom isn't held together by by politics and and, and tax revenue, but by the Holy Spirit, who draws all into the the one body through the grace of the sacraments. And the administrators, the royal administrators of the kingdom, aren't politicians and bureaucrats. Um, Some of them are, but that's another story. But (laughs) they're they're called to be apostles and prophets, right? Uh, The borders of this kingdom are not... extended through military conquest, but through missionary outreach. Not conquering territories, but conquering hearts and minds. The, the splendid kingdom of David in all its majesty, which became an international kingdom, which embraced even the, the Gentiles in the covenant family and made room for them in the temple. This splendid kingdom was only a type and figure 
of the worldwide Catholic kingdom of David's royal heir, our Lord and Savior, our King, Jesus Christ. Okay. Now, uh, I said that we're going to talk about a sign of the second coming that is related to a common prayer that you say every day and probably many times every day. Uh, In Matthew 24, uh, our Lord says, this is Matthew 24, verse 30, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and all the peoples of earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now, Thomas Akempis, among others, tell us that that sign that will appear in the, in the heavens is the sign of the cross. And so those who have been lovers of the cross, who have been devoted to our Lord's passion uh, and uh, have been you know, denying themselves and picking up their own cross daily to follow him, they will rejoice when they see this great sign. Um, but the, the, the wicked and the worldly, as our Lord says, will mourn. See, not, not, they're not going to rejoice so much <laughs> as, as the just will. And that sign of the cross is, of course, um, the, the, the expresses, the, the sign of the cross is a prayer, expresses the great uh, mysteries of the Christian religion, namely the Blessed Trinity and the Redemption. We, we begin and end our prayers with the sign of the cross because, as Paul says in Galatians 6.14, God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom the world is crucified to me and I to the world. Right? You, I, I'm crucified on the cross of Christ as far as the world is concerned. I am dead to the world, and the world is dead to me. See, And so nothing in the church, right, his kingdom on earth, is begun or carried out or completed without the sign of the cross. And remember, he said that, that when the kingdom was going to come without great signs, right, that it was going to be, you know, it's, it's, it's growing like a mustard seed and the weeds and the wheat are growing together. But at the end of all things, Christ appears with this great sign, the great sign in the heavens, and he comes on the clouds in glory and not in humility. So that sign of the cross is uh, there whenever anything in the church is, is carried out or, or completed. You know, all of the many blessings, all the ceremonials, the liturgy, uh, the, the Mass. Uh, you know, the traditional Mass alone, the sign of the cross is made 51 times. Okay? So it, it's the most common way of expressing our faith. By the sign of the cross, uh, generally you can tell uh, who's a Catholic and who's not a Catholic. And, and the sign of the cross had its origin in apostolic times. Now, to make the sign of the cross, and for those of you watching on Rumble, you can watch, but uh, I can describe it to you. You join the hands in preparation and put yourself in the presence of God. Then you lay your left hand on your breast, and with your extended fingers of the right hand, you touch your forehead, saying, in the name of the Father. And you touch the breast, saying, and of the Son. Touch the left shoulder, and of the Holy. Touch the right shoulder, ghost or spirit. And you finally rejoin your hands and say, Amen. That's the sign of the cross. It should be made um, deliberately. It should be made with great respect because it is the sign of our salvation. Uh, um, another way to make the sign of the cross is used um, at the 
Gospels of the Mass, two Gospels in the traditional Mass, you know, the, the Gospel and the last Gospel, where we make the sign with our thumb on our forehead, our lips, and our heart. Um, the sign of the forehead intends to show that we have the will to carry out our Lord's teaching. And on the lips, the, the uh, intent to express and, and profess God, right, verbally. And then on, the cross on our breast is a symbol of our love for him that fills our heart. May, be, may Christ be in my mind, on my lips, and in my heart. And in countries uh, with a, a Hispanic influence and a Hispanic tradition, the sign of the cross is, you know, they make a more elaborate one where they, they make the, uh, the, the small signs of the cross on forehead, lips, and heart, either with their thumb or just making a small sign of the cross each time. Uh, and there's words that go along with it naturally in Spanish or Portuguese, but uh, you would say by the sign of the Holy Cross, and then you make that first cross, you make the second small cross, um, from our enemies, a third cross, uh, deliver us, O Lord, our God. And then you make a big sign of the cross in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. And sometimes, you know, you'll see uh, here in Southern California, we have a, a fairly large Hispanic population. I see people, and they're quickly making, you know, one sign of the cross after another after another. And I always wondered what it was about. Well, you know, it's, it's a part of the, the uh, Hispanic cultural tradition that, uh, that those uh, several signs of the cross are made. And all of the words that are associated with uh, this, the three small signs and then the, the large sign of the cross are all taken right from the Roman Missal. So there you go. Uh, we should make the sign of the cross when we get up in the morning, uh, before we go to bed at night, before and after our prayers, before and after our meals, uh, before and after any principal action, whether you're going to work or play or, or study or, or whatever it might be. And, uh, um, and whenever, of course, we're tempted or in danger, whenever we're blessed, right, at Mass, at benediction, uh, anytime you're, you, you get an individual blessing from a priest. You know, it's customary to, to ask for a priest's blessing if he visits your home or, or you know, uh, if he visits, uh, you know, whatever the circumstances. Um, oftentimes our, our pastor will come into the RCIA class and I will always ask him to, to bless us, to give us a blessing. And uh, traditionally, uh, the custom was to kneel, and you make the sign of the cross on yourself as Father makes the sign of the cross, traces the sign in the air during the blessing. And there is an indulgence attached to the sign of the cross. Uh, once upon a time, you know, pre-Vatican uh, II, it was 100 days indulgence to make the sign of the cross, and 300 days indulgence if you make the sign of the cross with holy water. Uh, but now, of course, we don't, we don't count the... Uh, the uh, days as, you know, equivalent to doing a certain amount of penance or, or you know, whatever. Uh, but now we just say it's, it's uh, partial or plenary. So every time you make a sign of the cross, you get a partial indulgence. And presumably a, uh, 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 the indulgence is greater if you use the holy water. So I mentioned that we, when we make the sign of the cross, we're expressing two important mysteries of our religion, namely the Blessed Trinity and the Redemption. Because when we say the words, uh, first we say in the name, singular, in the name of, we're expressing the truth that there's only one God. But then we say in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we're expressing that truth that there are three distinct persons in the one God. So that's the doctrine of the Trinity in a nutshell. And then we form the cross on ourselves as we do that, expressing the truth that the Son of God made man redeemed us by his death on the cross. It is by that sign 
that we confess that we belong to the religion of our crucified Savior. By the sign of the cross, a Catholic makes clear, uh, he's making a clear confession, he's making it known, you know, what faith he belongs to. And of course, by the sign of the cross, we obtain God's blessing and, uh, and his protection from dangers, uh, spiritual and physical. And when I say that the sign of the cross is a confession of faith, that's a confession in the sense of, of a witness. And really, to make a sign of the cross in the public is a witness of our faith. To make the sign of the cross outside of um, a religious context is an even more powerful witness. For example, in a Catholic family, when you guys go out to eat at a restaurant, do you say grace before and after the meal? Do you make the sign of the cross when you pray? Because I can tell you right now, you know, I had uh, my wife and I, Betty and I had six kids. And when they were little and, you know, we'd go out to a restaurant someplace um, and, you know, we'd all be sitting down at the table and make the sign of the cross and, and we'd all fold our hands and, and say grace. And I can't tell you, I mean, this is not what you typically see. And it doesn't matter if you're in a fancy restaurant or McDonald's. Doing that is a witness. And, and I, I can't tell you how many times, uh, you know, a waitress or another customer or, you know, uh, somebody in management or whatever has come to us, usually privately kind of leans in close and says how nice it is to see people pray before they eat, how inspiring it is to see, especially a, a family where everybody is, you know, unashamed to make that sign of the cross and say that prayer and, and ask God to bless their food in, in a public setting like that. If you're not, you know, making, and I'm not saying that you, <laughs> I remember when I was, when I was taking RCIA, you know, 20 more plus years ago, back in the 90s, early 90s, um, I remember going to a restaurant with a priest and he, he made a big, uh, you know, kind of loud grace. I felt like a spotlight was hitting the table. But today, you know, you don't have to be ostentatious, but to, you know, to make that sign of the cross in public is to show that you are a lover of the cross and you are going to be among those who re rejoice at the end of all things when that sign appears in the sky and our Lord and King returns to usher in the new heaven and the new earth. All right, and that's no nonsense. Great to have you along with us. As always, thank you for listening. Don't forget... We have uh, January 29th and 30th, the annual Spiritual Warfare Conference coming up, January 2022. Seats are filling up fast, so if you want to come, I do recommend highly you go to virginmostpowerful.org, bmpr.org, and register for the conference now, because it's likely that we're not going to be able to accept anybody at the door, because we'll already be full. Okay, until next time, thank you so much for listening, and may God richly bless you and your family.